You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. In our last episode, we got into the weeds a bit about Niebuhr's position on pacifism and and violence, particularly by the state. And near the end, I was a little afraid, and I believe I mentioned as much, that we maybe ran the risk of being a bit unfair to the positions of those who consider themselves pacifists. Um, we didn't have a pacifist, a pacifist on the show last week. So we're bringing in a guest today uh, who is a personal friend of mine and former colleague, Anthony Jones, uh, who could give us hopefully a, a clearer and uh, more fair assessment of the position as we're trying to wrestle with these things that we discussed last week. And I'll, I'll introduce him here uh, in a moment. But before we bring him in, let's rehash a bit from last week. I'm joined as usual with our co-hosts, uh, Mr. Zach Narrison and Master Aaron Duncan. Fellas, say what's up. Hello. Hey. How's it going? <laughs> Aaron, Aaron is back in London now after visiting my neck of the woods last week in Cincinnati. Aaron. Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of describe where we ended up landing last week. I'm going to put it to you right when we, mm-hmm. right off the bat. Yeah. Um, where do we end last week in regards to Niebuhr's position on violence and pacifism? What kind of uh, stuck with you about yeah. his, I guess, theological reasoning for abandoning his prior position of pacifism? I think um, the way I'll approach this is kind of recapping the article. Uh, I've read, which is is the 1940s article called Why the Christian Church is Not Pacifist. And it's an overview and assessment on a couple of different levels. It's probably a historical analysis of the way pacifism as a movement has emerged, the philosophical foundations of pacifism, um, i.e. in Platonism, and then um, sort of view a sort of analysis of the sort of possibility of actually engaging in the uh, the call to Christian ethics or virtue. Is it actually possible to do that on a, on a human, like on a daily basis, right? So the, the first bit is the sort of historical emergence of pacifism. Niebuhr tends to argue that um, his pacifism emerged in like aesthetic communities. And the way pacifists tended to view was to retreat from the world in these little enclaves away from general society, was to remove themselves from society from force, that, that such, um, which also finds itself in the foundations of Platonism, where this is sort of mind-body dualism, where the body is seen as evil and need to be escaped from, where the so, mind is seen as this transcendent so, element, which is the good. So kind of implicit in this claim is the idea that uh, by moving away from society, you can kind of achieve a pure understanding of the Christ ethic. Yeah. Um, living within the society, maybe it's more difficult to, to carry out that. Uh, that it is. Way. It is. I guess the implicit, like, and also the implied uh, meaning, what Niebuhr's trying to show here is that pacifism has never been a unified sort of set or a, a, a position. And it's never been something that has had a continuity and in interpretation among Christians throughout the church. Okay. Um, so 
so that maybe goes to kind of the philosophical foundations, which I don't think is necessarily focused on at this point with Platonism. You kind of mm-hmm. gave an overview of that a second ago. But then he kind of goes to give an analysis of Jesus's position. Um, at the beginning of the article, he says, yeah, sure, Jesus's ethic is quite strong. You know, should we not kill anybody? Yeah, we can't. Um, but is that actually a position that we can take? Or is the, are, are the sort of injunctions in the Gospels um, that we find to not worry or be anxious or to love your neighbor, are these things that we actually do perfectly? Are we able to perfectly do this? So Niebuhr draws this very technical distinction, what he calls the impossible possibility, where he shows that in all of our daily lives, for instance, the injunction to not have anxiety, to not be anxious about tomorrow, he goes to show that anxiety is a basic condition of, of, of humanity. We are all anxious and it's hard not to be. And so it's one of those things that we cannot not be, but it's a possibility if we trust in God and have faith, right? So he goes to, on the, the fall of that argument that says, well, in sorts of killing and violence, is it possible to be, live in a world where violence is not mm-hmm. part of our daily life that we don't engage in? And so he brought a distinction, the impossible possibility. Good. Yeah. Uh, Zach, um, where do we fall uh, for you? Well, yeah, I mean, we didn't really come to any resolution. But I mean, what drew us into this was obviously what's going on in Ukraine, uh, the war there, and kind of how that really pushes on people's sensibilities about pacifism right people that are very pacifistic on twitter even i've just noticed they're they're suddenly saying you know i uh this is a lot more difficult right and and last week we talked about how uh you know one of the things we kind of came to is that you know or i guess one of the things that niebuhr defends is that there's kind of a necessity to political leadership like when you're a political leader of a community you're somewhat forced to use coercion to gain the ends that you're trying to seek out. And so I think Niebuhr defends that position well, right? You're a, you're a poor political leader, right? If you if your country is attacked and you just kind of roll over. Um, and that's, Niebuhr does a good job of almost distinguishing between like the person and the community leader and, and creating kind of a, um, almost an apologetic for that political leader um, because it's, it's not as cut and dry, right? And I think one of the things that Niebuhr highlights really well is that there's only so many forms of coercion in society. There's only only so many ways that you can get people to do what they need to do. Um, and how sometimes we frame, like the moralist Niebuhr says, uh, will try to frame violent coercion as somehow morally different than other forms of coercion. Mm-hmm. But they both involve some sort of violence in some way, right? They involve... Uh, you know, the example he gives is when Gandhi had his, um, I think it was a cotton boycott in India, it had a profound impact on those living in England who were dependent on that cotton, right? And th- they were just kind of... Uh, is that violence? Yeah, I mean, it, it did quite a, quite a, quite damage to their, their livelihood. And so Niebuhr's just does a really good job of highlighting that and, and just trying to highlight the fact that, you know, we, we can't always frame violent coercion as morally less less advantageous than other positions yeah and even take like the poster child we might have talked about this briefly last week the poster child for nonviolence is martin luther king and even his end game was to pass um legislation 
that that would cause the state to enforce in the South certain laws. That's still force, right? That's still like if you are refusing um, to serve black people in your diner, the state now will come in and say, you can't do this. And they will, you know, find them. They will, you know, who, you know, who knows where that ends. Um, so there's still force involved, even in the end, end game and the end, and the end goal for Martin Luther King. Yeah. And so in that sense, I think Niebuhr does a really good job of kind of doing what he always does. And he, he tries to make the innocent realize they need to repent and he makes the, yeah, you know, I mean, people who think of themselves as innocent, kind of in the framework, he's saying, right, it, the responsible thing to do is to uh, realize that you have to enter into life and enter into these kind of difficult scenarios and not just abstain from them yeah. um, and remain innocent. True. Um, so what I got from last week, the, and this is similar to what uh, Zach was, was just talking about, and we'll get, in, we'll get to our guests here in a second, but uh, the big thing that I landed on would be Niebuhr's position on Christ and the church from his book, The Interpretation of Christian Ethics, Niebuhr argues that the state oversees kind of this realm of relative justice. The state is that thing in society that approximates justice and does so, mind you, more than the church, which might, to a lot of Christians, might make you feel a bit uneasy. But it's interesting to consider the state has the power to enforce greater approximations of justice than the church. Um, a great amount of power. And like I said, the state does so in a relative manner. So no absolutes really, but to impose a burden like the perfect ethic of Jesus onto that realm of relative justice tends to either confuse things or just make the church irrelevant. Niebuhr argues the church is, you know, the church is supposed to be a source of prophetic witness to the state because it is the bearer of that perfect ethic that should be the state's greatest, greatest critic. However, the church also has to dialogue with the state. The church should want the state to excel in its approximation of justice and not leave the conversation entirely. So, so Niebuhr argues that there has to be some dialectic the church, the church operates from, not pure absolutes, not this illusion that a pure ethic of Christ can be maintained by the state, but that society can become more just through perhaps imperfect means and violence and force being among those imperfect means. So yes, we should love our neighbors as ourselves, but if that neighbor is a criminal, habitually a criminal, we would not be loving our other neighbors if we allowed that criminal to keep living in those communities he's hurting or she's hurting. We, we can still approximate justice for that criminal, approximate loving the criminal as ourselves, you know, give the criminal rights, set the criminal on a path to rehabilitation, etc. But the perfect ethic of Christ in this context cannot be executed perfectly in that relative realm, or you'll end up just loving the criminal and hurting the community. So the church basically has to know who they're talking to when they're making their ethical demands, or their demands will be so outlandish that they won't matter. Um, but the state should also be listening to that prophetic voice of the church, or it can get lost in kind of the systemic momentum of that relativity and itself become evil. So to kind of sum up that whole position is that the church has to have a way of talking and pressing the state and, and clinging to absolutes 100% of the time 
will ultimately remove us from that conversation. Um, I gave the example last week of um, police brutality. If we're 100% against police using force at all, can we really speak to relative forms of that force? I don't know if that makes sense. But that's, uh, that's kind of where I ended up la uh, last week. Um, so let's, uh, yeah, let's see here. Let's bring in our guest now, Anthony Jones, okay, a lead pastor at Common Grounds Christian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. Anthony and I taught uh, at the late great Cincinnati Christian University together for, I would say that we were probably there at the same time for about a, a decade. Is that right? I don't know. Yeah, I was a student starting in 05 and was either a student or taught through 2017, 16, 17. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so you, when did it close? Closed in 2019, just before. Right before COVID. the pandemic, yeah. Yeah, and I stopped teaching around 2017 when probably around the time they hired you full time to take all the adjunct classes, man. <laughs> yeah. You and Brooklyn uh, took all the adjunct classes from us. So. That's right. Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> uh, do you still keep up on your Greek, Anthony? Yeah, I do a little bit. I try to translate before I preach um, if I'm doing a New Testament. You do uh, it before I, you preach. Oh, my gosh. Like whatever, no, like whatever passage I'm preaching on, I would like to, as a part of the prep, translate that one um, to try to stay with it. Do you do that, Zach? I know Zach is yeah, still I do. trying to keep up on his Greek. Yeah, you're not you're not doing that, Cliff? No, <laughs> dude, I haven't I haven't tried Greek since the day after I graduated. So that's why I was with Hebrew. I blew, I blew it with Hebrew, man. I took a three and a half hour final. And I remember as I was taking it, thinking, I don't know when I'm going to look at this again. And <laughs> I, I don't, <laughs> I lost it, man. It's funny. Like my theology has become so like, like Hebrew Bible oriented lately that like, I think that if anything, I might go back and get back into the Hebrew again. I just don't, I don't even have a place to start. I would have to relearn it, man. I don't have it. So, yeah. Um, now, uh, Anthony, we've all prepared some questions for you, um, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and get the, the ball rolling for now. And again, the point of this is to try to kind of uh, get a fair assessment of the pacifist, uh, of the pacifist position uh, theologically. And, uh, and yeah, I thought, I thought you'd be a, um, a great person to have on for that. And thank you very much um, for joining us in this. Sure. Um, sure. You were at least at one time uh, a very strong advocate for something like the pacifist position, I know, and I hesitate to articulate it completely for you. I'll let you do that. But um, last time we spoke, you said that you did some adjusting to your position. And just before we got on here, you kind of went, uh, maybe went back a little bit more. So you're, you're still theologically pacifist, I think. I'll, I'll let you describe it. But let me let me put my question this way. How would you articulate your position on violence, pacifism, church state relationship, et cetera? And how have you, I guess, adjusted your beliefs and why? Yeah, sure. Um, I would I probably don't use the term pacifist must, but but it's the easiest one in these kind of situations. But I would say I'm just committed to nonviolence as a Christian. I'm a Christian committed to nonviolence. Um and I do start with the, the scriptures I hold to be a foundation for our ethics and not that people that disagree with me don't think that way. Um, but I start with that, with the life and teachings of Jesus. And that is the center point for uh, 
my foundations for all Christian belief and practice. And I struggled to find a way to um, justify a self-affirming position that is pro-violence. So I'm, I should say I am not like naturally a gentle person. I remember being really into like the early UFC when it was like really gruesome, <laughs> renting the movie, the uh, renting them from like Blockbuster, man, when oh, they I first came out, like, oh man, it's intense. And was, you know, a bloodthirsty teen and uh, listened to a lot of music that was very condoning of violence and, um, and grew up in that kind of a culture. So, uh, but from reading scriptures, I just can't find a way to affirm it. So, and I also don't know if I would necessarily uh, live it out well, personally, if I was attacked or whatever, um, but I wouldn't justify it and would have be begging for God's mercy during and after if I was ever having to resort to violence. And I don't see that when Christians talk about this, especially in our country, there is quite a bit more self-affirming embrace, a self-justifying embrace of, of uh, political violence and military violence that I think doesn't come in with the degree of trepidation required. Um, or the degree of repentance. So for example, a, I know that I remember one quote that stood out to me was a military historian, Aaron Bustovich said basically that the militarism that exists in our country is only made possible by the multiple tens of millions of evangelicals that have supported and embraced such a view without criticism. Um, and so when I say that I'm more open, it's like if I could imagine the church pinching its nose as it perhaps waded into that occasionally in the right historical situation i could i could i could affirm the wrestling and that would celebrate that but i witnessed more a uh, a celebration and embrace of it and a presumption that it has to be this way as the, the most practical option i think it confuses the church's role in the world to witness to the death and resurrection of jesus as our only hope um, leave vengeance and judgment to God and be willing to not only die, but forsake this uh, falsehood that it's our responsibility to manage the world or to help foster a good society. So you would uh, say, to kind of sum you up a little bit, you would say that there are times when it may be necessary, but it would still be evil. Yeah, I think that it would have to be done with lots of dependence on on the mercy of God and a recognition that uh, I'm not justified in doing this, at least by the scriptures. I don't think they leave room for it. Um, and I, I, I mean, you all mentioned, you know, that I didn't read the article that Aaron Duncan was summarizing, but about the impossible impossibility of Jesus's ethic. And yet I think when Paul writes Romans 12, I think he's expecting Christians to pray for and bless those who persecute them uh, to leave room for the wrath of God, to never avenge yourselves. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. Um, and it's it, nonviolent enemy love without overcoming evil with evil is the expectation. Even if that means we die or leave justice in the hands of people who don't follow Jesus. But so you would Oh, go ahead, oh. Zach. Well, all I was going to say is I feel like the uh, 
what, what, that's actually one of the things we came to last because we were kind of looking at Niebuhr's view is that he, he basically says like he didn't he basically said uh, beyond it being responsible political leadership to you, you resort to violent coercion from time to time he definitely didn't go about it by saying like oh yeah this is he actually described it uh, very similarly to you in the sense that it, you should always know that you, at the end of the day you're gonna have to repent like this is not a uh, we use the like the the story that kind of brought it all together i think for me is just kind of thinking back on you know uh, david going to build the temple and god being like uh no <laughs> there's blood on your hands buddy you know what i mean and that that, that there's something about that that's still um those those were justified it's, it's still something about it that was kind of wrong. Even though he was led into combat by god yeah he was still god still said no you did this you followed what i told you but you still got blood on your hands yeah and i think um the other thing that i was going to kind of i don't know i kind of wrestle with a little bit here is i i am equally and i think niebuhr as we kind of read through him he's he would be in the same page with us here one of the worst parts is when people forsake that that almost like like reluctant you know pursuit of war but war is kind of this weird thing where like or at least not just war but like yeah war let's just use war as an example war is one of these strange things where you almost need people to just in order to like motivate a massive group of people reluctant violence is very difficult in terms of like motivating a group and again i'm not a political theorist but just in my experience, it seems like you almost need that fervor. You almost need that. It's sick and twisted as it is. You almost need a group of people to be like, this is justified violence. Because it, like, it, it's almost like I can't imagine, you know, like for instance, it, this is a terrible example, but like there was kind of this fervor around the Iraq war, right? And I, I don't think that we should have gone to Iraq or anything, but that fervor allowed that war to happen, right? But at the same time, it's that same type of fervor that allowed like World War II for us to enter into World War II in response to, um, I'm, I'm generalizing, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I just feel like there's, there's some element that you almost need that a bit craziness, you know what I mean? As much as I don't want that to be a necessity on a mass scale, it seems unavoidable, you know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, that's why I would say the Christian's job is to not engage with that process. I don't know if I agree with, um, Niebuhr's take that to disengage from uh, military support in the political realm also calls for an irrelevance to society. I mean, I think about Christians in, I mean, to be clear, I think Christians in biblical times all the way up through Augustine, there's no tension on this. I think they had tension and disagreement and, and, and division around how we understand the Trinity how we understand Jesus as, as both human and divine, even what books are in the Bible. But there is no tension about engaging with political violence until it became politi politically expedient uh, to do so. Um, and that's, that's I wrestle a big with point, that. though. That's a big point, because up until Augustine, it's still illegal to be a Christian, or it's maybe it's not illegal, but it's still not the dominant party necessarily, right? I mean... Um, so you're thinking that there's a different because we are the dominant, we now have thrust upon us a role that betrays the very thing that made us become dominant. I, I don't think betrays. I think it's all just a matter of turning the page from Romans 12 to Romans 13 and seeing. Well, can, we, that, can we talk about that one? some? yes, yes, absolutely. Because you do bring a, up a good point. I, I might want to differentiate justice and vengeance a little bit, but God does place justice 
at the hands of the ruler. In New Testament Christianity, maybe all the way up until Augustine. Because they've committed to that. Like to me, I think that, go ahead. I was was just going to say that it's not necessarily a a commitment, but as much as it is convenience, Paul is speaking to people not in control. If you look at Romans 13 in light of today, who is the ruler here in the United States? Is it the president or is it or is it voters? Who actually is in charge in this country? I know Madison made it ambiguous power. Power is ambiguous here. Um, it, a lot of it has to do with uh, with the voters. In some ways, uh, we are just as much the kings in this country as we are the oppressed, if that makes sense. Um, Paul is speaking in Romans to an oppressed people who don't have any control whatsoever of the powers. But he still says, you know, um, leave this stuff to the rulers. Uh, they Even the part about the sword, justice is a necessary part um, of society. But we have kind of moved into this ambiguous state from Romans 12 to a Romans 13 type of position where we aren't kings, but we kind of look more like kings than the people Paul is writing to in Romans. I would not. I think there's. Um, I think it's a slippery slope to to say because we have voting power, we now take on full blown embrace of. Uh, we don't. I'm saying it's there's an ambiguity there. There is an ambiguity. I do think that voting does possess a sense of of force. There can be a coercive nature to it. I'm also willing to engage with things that can be coercive but are deliberately nonviolent or a restraint on violence to to embrace. Um, I think I met when Paul writes the Romans 13 thing, I think that he's coming after both his injunctions and and 12 to for enemy love and not responding, leaving vengeance to to God. And then even in Romans 13 to say, you know, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Um, and I think within that, the question is, how do we deal with this, the reality of governing authorities? And you relate to them by letting them do what they do because they've committed to that way. And I see it more as the fact not so like the question is, is God so affirming that role that therefore it would be a Christian thing for me to deliberately get into that role and play a role in it and in doing so be a part of God's agent? I, I would say I you're would already say there. No. I would say you're already there. Like you don't, you're born with, I mean, based upon our own. There's got to be a difference, man, between being born into a society that's democratic, where there is a choice to vote versus uh, choosing to join an army, choosing to become a politician with those kinds of powers. And I think those, I think those roles should be left in the hands of, uh, I would say if you're a Christian, I would refrain from, from joining roles that are going to force you to not just engage in force, but engage in violence that destroys a person. Forceful restraint. When I throw a vote down, I happen to live in a society that will, that cares about my opinion. I will contribute my opinion, but I will deliberately let that occupy a very small space of living into the kingdom witness that we're called to and toss out my opinion on the vote for whoever I think will allow for justice to happen. 
I don't think that person, I would not recommend that person be a Christian. I think that it's similar to the fact that Jesus or that God knows that there are people in the Old Testament time that are bent on violence like Babylon. And he lets them having already made that choice to lead a life in that way towards his purposes, which ends up being to judge his people. And then he still uh, condemns the, the violence. So they were God's agents doing God's purposes and that they were in the wrong, similar to Judas who betrays Jesus. And Jesus says it would be better for that person not to have been born, even though his whole goal was to go there and die. But he's more letting the fact that people have made these deliberate decisions in their hearts to be the, the Gentiles that lorded over them, as Jesus says. And he just says, if someone's going to be doing that, God is going to direct that intention in a way that accomplishes purposes by restraining evil in a world where some people uh, do not want to restrain themselves. So he's going to use the fact some are bent on ruling and violence and he will let them use that. But I think that where I think Niebuhr, I would disagree with his, his uh, interpretation of Christian ethics is that therefore uh, Christians should feel responsibility to join deliberately, purposefully, and like in a premeditative fashion. I'm going to plan this versus uh, I react violently to a home invasion in the moment and have repentance immediately. So uh, one thing, one thing I was going to like, I, I just, you know, it'd be good to get kind of everybody's thought on this, but you know, one of the things that I think Niebuhr took that, not that stance, but he took a stance of just kind of like preserving like a, like a, uh, like a pacifist stance, like right at the beginning of world war two. And he was a big critic of the president at the time, you know, really kind of like, Hey, like you shouldn't be doing this. Like, this is not a good route. Uh, you're militarizing the United States, blah, blah, blah. And then I believe uh, Germany invaded Poland. I think that's when he all of a sudden had the shift and realized he was like, oh, shoot, like, you know, Roosevelt knew what he was doing. You know, he, he, he actually was planning ahead and it was actually very important for the U.S. and its political agenda and, and its maybe survival, who knows, um, that they were they were planning right they, they had been militarizing the united states and that's preemptive right he's saying i'm going to pre i can see that germany's building up its military and so yeah so so niebuhr kind of came to recognize wow maybe maybe we were a little bit off here maybe maybe all of us calling for pacifism we were actually just making it easier for hitler to do what he wanted to do um and i, I can't help but kind of think about you know how that applies to Ukraine. You know, I think almost our inattention to Russia and our kind of inattention to their goals is part of kind of why they kind of knew they could do this, right? They, they kind of knew they could, they estimated we can kind of get away with this this much. Um, so Zach, you're kind know. of talking like practically, <clears throat> um, like on the ground, if we were to, uh, if we were to, have gotten ahead of this uh, and been more proactive militarily or something like that, we could have kept a lot of suffering from happening. And yeah. it seems like Anthony's making a more biblical case that we cannot be a part of, we cannot be a part of the military type of thing. And that we might be running past each other a little bit now. Cause I don't even think that Anthony would, and I'll let you uh, respond to this, Anthony, but I don't think that Anthony would even say, necessarily that fdr was right is that right 
Uh, I don't know enough about that history, honestly, to know. In general, though, I mean, if he wants to follow Jesus, I'm going to ask, I'm going to read with him the end of Romans 12 and all the verses in Romans 13 after the, the two or three that would be in question and ask how this his choices fit in with that. And again, I don't, my responsibility as a pastor or a teacher is not necessarily to have the answer, but to lay down the, the principles and how early Christians responded and, and, uh, and make him, as Paul says in Philippians, to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. And if he draws a conclusion that he thinks God wants him to do this, well, have at it, man. Uh, I don't think that... But not have at it completely, though, right? There's still an ethic. No, have at it in terms of, like, make the choice that you think you want to make, and it, and I'll leave it in God's hands, but I think that you are it, betraying what Christ is after, yes. I okay, think as, as, soon as, as soon as FDR betrays what Christ uh, is saying, is there anything in Scripture to further instruct him, or does or as a Christian, do we just cut off? And we have nothing left to say once he made, he's made that decision to go to war. Is there something like a just war that we should try to push him toward? Uh, like, or something with, uh, that is more proportionate rather than becoming, you know, maybe don't bomb Dresden, you know, and some of the other atrocities in the United States and Britain were behind during World War II. Is, does our Christian witness just end as soon as he's no longer a pacifist, or can we speak to something in that relative realm of justice? I mean, I would just rather never stop challenging. Like, I think that all of Christ the Christian ethic is a vanishing horizon that we keep describing the ideal and push for it. So even the thought of, you know, you quoted Niebuhr's teaching on Jesus's um, teaching of don't worry I wouldn't be like, well, that's impossible. Or you're going to have anxiety. I'd rather just say, how is, is there not a call to live in continuous resistance to our tendency to respond to our human frailty by being anxious about it and controlling it and instead learn to transcend above that, to leave it in God's hands? Will we ever get there? No. Uh, same with living in a, a world that's filled with violence. I react with uh, violent thoughts and violent impulses uh, every day. And there's a, an ongoing resistance to try to push against that and to teach against that. And so I, I don't, I would just teach against that to him. So I think the church does witness and it is relevant to a world by modeling a, the nonviolent way, even being willing to die to do so. And I think that's what the book of Revelation is about, where it's like it appears like the ones ruling the world are the ones who protect their lives and the lives of their of their neighbors and families and uh, nations. And uh, Christians follow a God who gave up his life for the world. And we count our lives not worthy as a witness to a, a, a life beyond this life and invite people to reconsider their their modes of power. And if you insist on feeling responsible to manage the world instead of, I like Stanley Hauerwas's uh, challenge to make the world the world by being distinctive in our ethic. Um, then yeah, you're going to be in tension. I think that the fact that FDR even got to be president in the first place, I would push against that. I would say that those mistakes did not happen. These are all hypotheticals though. Like I don't see. Um, so 
it, it feels like an all or nothing type of play where if you are going to be president and a part of that is commanding the largest army on earth, there's no instruction scripture can give you about how to govern responsibly that portion, that, that portion of power in the world. That it's, it's either, it's basically, you're no different than a, than a tyrant if, if you're you know, in charge of this military. I, I, I refuse to believe that. I, I would say, though, there's a marked difference between, and I think this is perhaps, perhaps, you know, getting along the lines of where I would want to head is, and obviously the United States military has done some very terrible things along the way. Um, but I will say that certain presidents have exercised a certain amount of restraint, right? And our, our soldiers have exercised a lot more restraint that I think historically has been prevalent, especially in recent years, um, right? Like you can go to jail for, if you kill somebody that you shouldn't have killed, right? You can go to jail, right? And just about every other military in the world that probably wouldn't happen, right? There, you can get, you know, yeah. My point, my point being, like I'm, I'm reading along with kind of doing my Niebuhr reading. I've been doing, I've been reading Barack Obama's memoir and listening to his memoir and listening to how he considers these kind of very complicated situations where like, how do we use coercion correctly? How do we use it non-correctly? Right. I think there is a, I would push back on you Cliff a little bit to say that there is a sense in which um, there is a sense in which there is, I think a biblical pattern for leadership, which uses violent coercion. Um, I think there is like, it, there's a certain responsibility. There's a certain thoughtfulness. There's a certain, um, cause otherwise I think you're totally restrained from any sort of political leadership, right? You're not gonna be able to responsibly lead, you know, anything oh, that uses oh, Zach, coercion. A hundred percent what I'm arguing. Was what, okay. what I, I mean, I would advise against Christians pursuing political leadership as an expression of their Christian witness. Again, I'm coming from, I, I think that the only way we get here is why, uh, or get to where I think Cliff is, is by turning towards uh, pragmatic common sense that I think gets away from the the biblical witness. Well, let me I, bring it. Let me bring it to you. You are a. I'm bringing politics to you, Anthony. Okay, you're already in it. You are the leader of a church of. I don't know how many attend there weekly. They listen to you. Uh, gain instruction from you. You make decisions for the community. You are a political leader. Whether you want to admit that or not, you are a political leader. There are even. I would. I would bet. Uh, certain penalties or punitive measures at your disposal for certain actions that people do in under your care. Would that be correct? Uh, yeah. So to be clear, I, clear about my view, I mean, going for political positions that put you in a place where you have to oversee or direct violence in order to be, quote unquote, successful in the role. You don't think you're already in that type of position? where somebody comes into your community and let's say that they are a police they're officer, har they're harassing people. Let's say that they are, they're acting belligerent, uh, belligerently. Are you in a position to say, okay, we actually need to get police involved. Are you, are you in a position where you would say, okay, we can't handle this within the church any longer. Uh, we should bring in somebody who can forcibly take this person out of our congregation. Yeah, I think I would call the police. Again, they've made their that choice to become that. 
Um, but you're doing it. In general, policemen don't have to. I mean, many could spend a dec multiple decades and might discharge their weapon once or twice. Um, I do think I put policemen in a different category. This is where there's gray to me about roles that inflict much less of it. That's convenient, um, though, because it's your this is a political position that you're in. You do have some measures of force at your disposal. You have certain measures of uh, maybe not punish people, but you have certain place, certain things in uh, within your church to deal with hostile behavior, even theological issues. I mean, I'm sure there's there there's some level where you have to step in, and maybe it's not direct force, but there's maybe a threat of force at some point, right? Would I mean, you say in that regard, you're a political leader? <laughs> yes, I lead an organization for sure. Uh, people are voluntarily committed to it. They can hold me accountable if they don't like it. I lead with- Sounds like uh, a political party to me. I lead with language and challenge. And uh, there's no, I don't see, there's this conflation here of like any level of accountability or um, I don't wanna say threat. I don't know if I've made or would where I would make threats at, but um, I'm down for accountability. I'm down for responding with uh, even forceful restraint that is deliberately, my capacity for violence is deliberately curbed when I don't have a gun uh, on me ever uh, and would recommend people don't have them. I can't control if someone has one in my church if I don't see it. Um, but that would that would limit the damage I can inflict to where I'm I'm already purposely trying to restrain a capacity to do lasting harm. Um, Let's say your church is in Mexico City, okay, that is full of drug lords. All right, I'm not asking you to put on a gun here, but you would say that that type of position where you are a leader in that community, you have maybe it's. Uh, exacerbated a bit more maybe it's more heightened but there is a, a need that there's a difference between those types of people that you might have to um, be mindful or, or that you are responsible over be mindful of the well the well-being and safety of these people than the the place that you live right now i think you'd agree with that right would it be yeah, easier i, mean, I to, don't think or go ahead don't they go door to door and uh acts i forgot where it was I think Jason is a name that comes to mind where they're going door to door, ripping Christians out of there. And I mean, I don't think there's any um, legitimacy for, for planning violent self-defense. Even when, even when Augustine started writing pro just war kind of stuff, he would even say that violent self-defense is never okay and left it in the hands of if you are a part of the state. So but if, you, if you're willing to call the police, how is that not violent self-defense? Um, they've made a deliberate, this is again, the Romans 13 folks that, uh, but you don't have to call them. You don't have to use them toward your end. They have made a choice that they want to do that. <laughs> they so made then that why not the why not the president? The president is overseeing this huge military. These people signed up for it. Why can't? He uh, I mean, what I make a distinction if they make a choice to be a Christian or not. So if those policemen are Christians, 
uh, or someone says they want to be they want to be a policeman, I would again ask them to wrestle with those texts and make them make the choice. So that's part of I mean, I guess part this does fit into my pedagogy a little bit and where I'm not the kind of preacher that demands you agree with me or that will give you the final black and white choice in each moment. I would say why I would probably restrain from making that choice or what would make it really difficult for me. And uh, so if you were about to call the police and you found out one of the policemen you were bringing in here was a Christian, you would say, nope, go back. Give me another one. Give me a non-Christian. No, I mean, I would I definitely would call the police. Maybe this is where I have some gray uh, for sure. I would call what I'm trying to say is your gray. It's easier for you to see your own gray a little bit, maybe after a little poking and prodding. But that gray still exists, I would say, in a political position in a more uh, proper political position you're you're demanding so much more so like for me uh so it's a a matter of in a hypothetical scenario yeah my i think the scale matter of degrees in a hypothetical scenario of of a an intruder coming into our building and us reacting by calling the police which um doesn't happen hardly ever and uh it's it's a mere uh hypothetical scenario versus me making a, a long-term decades-long move towards becoming president where what is it obama directed like twenty-six thousand bombs over the time of his presidency across seven countries uh i mean that's not there it that absolutely is a matter a matter of scale and it's for a purpose that i still would question so and now we're not now we're just deal. talking about really just war we're not really talking about whether it's a straight pacifism 100% of the time. There's some spectrum. You could you could call yourself a pacifist and exist on some spectrum, right? About what would push you over the line. You're still negotiating a gray area. Right? Well, what well, I said, I mean, what I said at the very beginning was that how I, I'm not describing what I would always do in every scenario, especially ones where I'm reacting on the fly. Uh, that I do have impulses that I would like to restrain or curb, or I'm uncertain how I would respond, but uh, reacting to a moment um, at a church being attacked is much different than a deliberate intention to collect a profession that that requires a great deal of bloodshed to be successful. So, um, I, I, there's something I think we're going to kind of get in at and kind of getting around that I think would be interesting kind of to, to discuss further. And I think it's about like, what is the possibility to which we're striving for? And I, there's this, that at the end of his chapter, uh, after chapter nine in a moral man of immoral society, Niebuhr says this, he says, uh, the history of human life will always be the projection of the world of nature. The end of history, the peace of the world, as Augustine observed, must be gained by strife. It will therefore be a perfect. It, it will therefore not be a perfect peace, but it can be a more perfect, more perfect than it is, if the mind and the spirit of man does not attempt the impossible, if it does not seek to conquer or eliminate nature, but tries only to make the forces of nature the servants of human spirit and the instruments of moral ideal. A progressively higher justice and more stable peace can be achieved. And so one of the things I, I think that I really kind of wrestled with last week as we were looking at this violence thing, I think it's something we're kind of almost touching on a little bit, is I, I think that Niebuhr still believes that Christians are responsible for being a part of a more per, uh, making the peace on earth more perfect than it is, right? It's, it's clear that 
the piece that we have to that we're going to have to seek is going to require strife, right? And he's kind of picking up Augustine's ideas there. But he's still like Niebuhr is really pushing the fact that we should be we're responsible to be a part of like being a part of making that piece happen to the best of our ability. And I think that there's a real tendency, especially like in evangelicalism and a lot of the churches that I kind of grew up in to kind of almost just like put those issues like outside of the church and just say, okay, like we're not, we're not going to broach those. We're not going to touch mm. those. And Niebuhr saying it, almost in a very social gospel way, right? He's, he's definitely influ influenced by the social gospel. He's saying, Hey, like uh, come into the process, right? We, he's not going as far with as the social gospel did and saying we can actually achieve it. He's saying, we should, we're still responsible to like strive for that. And it clearly involves the necessity of strife, you know? Um, I yeah. think it's similar to Aaron's point earlier when he's talking about the monastics living out. And this is kind of where pacifism really developed. Uh, yes. If you kind of build the illusion that you are separate from the world, then pacifism becomes a real possibility in your mind. But but you're not yeah. distinct from the world. And that's what I was kind of trying to, to, uh, yeah. to bring in with, with Anthony's. Anthony's not that different from maybe the responsibilities of some politicians. Maybe it, it might be by degrees, you know, that type of thing. Uh, but, you know, the problems, the strife of the world, uh, we can't pretend that we aren't a part of the same hypocrisies as the state. Man, yes. That, I, I think that you're... you're Conflate. Oh, sorry. Aaron's going on. Come no, on. no, go ahead. Go ahead, Anthony. I, I think that uh, I think that Cliff, you're unfairly blending things that are actually very far apart on reality. It's almost like saying that a person who is a lifeguard at a beach that will happen to see a lot of scantily clad women would be really, if you really think about it, the same as someone that's engaged in the pornography industry, since they're both probably uh, experiencing lustful thoughts along the way, but like the actual experience on the ground is a major chasm. I think no, I, I would say yeah. that I would say generally that lust is on the beach and it's looking at porn, uh, that those are linked and that you, we can't just pretend that one is pure and the other one is yeah. not the same things can be, can unfold in, in either venue. Um, yeah. And and so if you're using kind of your if you're distinguishing porn from the beach, then you might not be so prepared to deal with the beach. You know, uh, if 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 you're seeing that as kind of this pure area that's that you can kind of escape from the stripes of the world uh, from in this in this position. Does that make sense? You're still and 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 it might be, it might seem like an unfair assessment to claim that kind of what you're doing is political but i would say that what aaron duncan is doing is political and he's not even a part of a church but it's just goes back to aristotle that we are political animals that how we understand like if you put a group of strangers on a, an isolated island you will see how politics naturally develops it, the, the social dynamics just naturally develops even enforcement and rules these things just not you cannot escape politics no matter what Aaron, I think I'm sorry, go ahead. No, so I think one way to think about this because when when we're speaking about these positions almost dialectically opposing like idealism, absolutism, and pragmatist pragmatism, these things, is is what Niebuhr really is trying to get at, is the is trying to evaluate kind of like what Nietzsche does um in uh beyond good and evil, the imminence where we are thrown into almost what kind of Heidegger says, we are thrown into this life 
and we can never escape it by trying to ha- remove ourselves into these big categories that cover all the world or cover all human beings. There's no place we can recede into because we're so particular. We're so um, uh, individuated. We have our own beliefs, our own values. We're born into a society of values. I think probably what, what I want to get at as well is um, if, if we're trapped in this imminence and we can't recede it and we can't remove ourselves from a community, what does it actually mean to love justice? Is it something we can, if we love justice as a concept or as justice big J and we remove ourselves from our communities, how can we actually participate in justice when we are so localized and thrown into our communities? Does that make sense? Uh, probably a bad questioning question. No, that's for that, great. So how can you actually be an advocate for justice if it's never a pure justice? And, yeah. and it's never a justice within just your own kind of safe white community, but a justice at large. Like, how do yeah. you enter into that without taking on um, kind of the bad things that go along with it? I, yeah. I think to some degree, you, you want to avoid, right, the belief that you have arrived, right? That's, that's something that I think in some ways evangelicals have highlighted really well is to say, or just Protestants in America have highlighted really well is to say like, hey, like, just so you guys know, like, you know, they're saying like, hey, Christ is going to create a greater kingdom, Right. And so not like letting that get into your head that we're going to be, you know, the city on a hill, right? Isn't that the guy, what the guy said as he came over on the boat into America, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it's, I think, avoiding that and saying, hey, like we're not, we're not, we're not going to achieve that. But at the same time, still striving for a greater peace, right? Still yeah. striving for progress, even though we, we know that inevitably like Christ has to bring that fully and it, it's only going to be realized fully through him. Like there's still commands like all throughout the Old Testament to like you know uh, love what is it love mercy uh, like six yeah yeah do you remember it the weightier things of the the law love justice the Lord require you but love justice do mercy yeah yeah we and walk humbly with your God yeah we we see we we read that for our reading of the law occasionally at, at during our service and I always like think about that I think about man like just recently i've really thought about the fact that because i was a really big into pacifism early in my christian walk and i just realized i was like man how do you how do you bring about any sort of justice in society without some level of violent coercion like is that possible you know is that even is are you just like talking about something that only will be even closely achieved in like when christ returns you know it's like but maybe i don't know remember like who is criticizing too he's i think it's the scribes maybe or the pharisees where he's saying that you're straining out a gnat but there's a camel you know right there and it don't like it almost seems to me like a um the saying that our obsession for purity is actually taking us away from the things that really matter and actually executing real justice real mercy yeah. The one thing that popped in my mind, and I kind of what Anthony's take on this as well, it's not really well thought out. Most of what I think is not really well thought out anyway. But any anyway, um, <laughs> I remember watching the Niebuhr documentary, um, and just as, as a four piece, Anthony, I actually have no idea what my position is on this. I'm just trying to read Niebuhr and understand it. 
and so I can get some perspective. But I remember hearing Jimmy Carter talk about how he wrestled as a Christian himself. He has to make those decisions in a, in a particular office, whether I think what you mentioned earlier, where it has to prepare for violence or plan to use force, as it's not just solely reactionary um, as someone running into your house. But what the one thing I didn't hear you talk about was for Christians who are in these positions, what do you think it's like for them to wrestle with those decisions well, who, who are in the position? Can I, can I also add, because this is just to add to it, it's almost like it's almost like saying, who would you rather? Because there are nu- like there is a reality. There are nuclear bombs. Would you rather them like in the hands of like Barack Obama or Jimmy Carter or in the hands of like Vladimir Putin? And it's kind of like, I don't know. Go ahead. That goes, I think it goes along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) But But like, who, who do we want in that role? Like as Christians, or I mean, as, as Christians looking at the world, trying to see peace lived out, who, like, what, 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 what has a greater possibility for peace on earth and and for justice on earth? Sorry. I I didn't mean to take over Aaron's question, but I wanted to add that. And, and it's, and it's not even as necessarily as huge as nukes, but who do you want making the decision about who gets the cancer research and who doesn't? You know, or like who gets because uh, the president has to make these types of decisions. Who gets this money for for this activity and, and, and who doesn't? Who gets pardoned? And maybe and I would say everybody should get. Pardoned. And this is kind of what I was getting at with Anthony earlier about, OK, once they decide to forego Christ's uh, injunction about. I don't even think it's nonviolence, but non-vengeance, uh, then. Is there anything left for the Christian to say to that person in power after that? Is there such a thing as wisdom for a a king or for a president that they should have or a voter? Uh, Or is it just a is it just an either or is it just, you know, in or out? Well, I think if Anthony might jump in, because I remember I was talking to Dane Smith, our friend Dane, you know, Dane, and I had this conversation with him before as well. And he mentioned that Christians are, are, are strange to the world. And it was more of his justification that we don't make sense. And so when, when Cliff asks, do we have any wisdom to teach? That's where I, that's where I get a bit mixed up as well. Because I'm like, well, you know, Rome, First Corinthians 2 power of God is both the Christ crucified seems quite bent on Jesus' sacrifice. That true power of reversals there, right? Reversal power structures. And that is strange to a world of violence. But if if Christians are to be part of the world, how, how do we actually provide any wisdom to people in positions of power and such like that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think we're quite tangled up here because it's been there's been lot many many years in a row of Christians uh, governing from that place and being very public about the fact that they're doing this as Christians and I think it has made uh, it would I think it has confused the gospel witness and set expectations before the world that we continue to manage society and make it as relatively just and peaceful as we can that at this point it would look really strange and be further confusing and probably pretty scandalizing, at least for a generation, uh, if Christians as a way of repentance totally bowed out of roles that would require uh, deliberate, deadly, violent force. 
Um, and I think that that could, that is, uh, would be an exciting witness to the kingdom and would it allow for, uh, certain, um, non-Christian people to embrace that power and potentially abuse it for harm, maybe, but it partially still bears witness to Jesus because it's not faithful people doing it. It's telling, it helps tell the truth that this is what happens when uh, God is rejected, more violence ensues. And we paint, we point towards a world in which uh, as Aaron just testified that the cross is the, is the true power and it's foolishness to the world it's not pragmatic it's not for political expediency it's not going to be successful as a nation it will not keep us safe or secure or wealthy but i don't think those things are kingdom values and um i think it's our call to resist that so the tension is to describe this to to a person that's setting and ask them to discern what repentance looks like and if they may say i'm going to do it anyway then that's their conscience. And they had to wrestle with the passage. I did my role to describe what's going on there and they can do theirs to respond. I think that is the wisdom that someone in the world exists calling out the harm of violence of all sorts and begging people to rethink their uh, requirement to engage in it and to open up an imagination that goes beyond uh, the next year or decade and to imagine, you know, a life beyond this life and, uh, it may not look wise and Christians may look crazy. And some would say that we probably have abandoned our call in the world, but I think we are truer to the gospel witness. And I'm willing at some point you have to trust God that God's the one that will restrain the Putins of the world or let them have at it. And he will exact vengeance on that day, on that great day when he returns. And I think that also is a powerful message to the world. I think yeah. it will, it will be complicated witnessing to that when Christians have occupied such a space of, self-affirming political violence and um we'll have to deal with that tension when it came if it does come i don't think it will because once people get there they want to keep it so one one last question i think that we we can wrap it up after this um i'm interested to hear how you would answer this anthony and it probably is a both and type of thing um something we've been wrestling over with niebuhr i think is this belief that niebuhr has that christianity is here ultimately to make this world better um and i already know like I, I think i know how you might respond to this to that but is the role of christianity to make this world that we're living in right now more just or is it more important that christianity should be followed and obeyed or both I think we make this world more just by uh, using gospel means to witness. What is that? So the means of Jesus described at the end of Romans 12 and in Sermon on the Mount, meaning the character and uh, manner and teachings and life of Jesus as our model and witness to the gospel way. And in doing so, long for people's actual hearts to become more just. I think our world would long for a just society without a just citizenry. And I don't think that's possible. And I think Jesus longs for us to engage on a completely different mission that attempts to get that justice shoved down into their heart. So they become the kind of person that would never want to do the injustice things in the first place. And I would want to direct 
our attentions, our energies, our finances, our time, our thought processes to our prayers towards that end. And if in the meantime, some other power hungry or violent pagans are running the world and committing atrocities, I leave that in the hands of God to avenge those at his own timing. And in the meantime, as the world is exposed for how bloodthirsty it actually is, I actually think more will be drawn to the way of Jesus, which was the case, I think, the first three or 400 years of the church's existence. It was their nonviolent resistance, their willingness to forsake their lives as a witness to the gospel that did make it become eventually to be the dominant religion of the day, which then uh, uh, Constantine uh, harnessed and abused for his political interests. And since then, I think we've been wrestling with this kind of conversation. So, um, but I think what drew them in and made those people more just was that they conformed to the way of Jesus. Uh, just one, like, just based on something you said, because you, you kept on referring back to Romans 12. There's an interesting part where he says, if, if it is possible on your part, live at peace with everyone. What is that? Why does he leave that door open? I think he, I thought he says, insofar as it depends on you, meaning the role that you have to play, do that. And if you, uh, I don't think it means, well, I think we can't force people to be peaceful people. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think it's in the sense of like, I can't make my enemy reconcile with me, but I can be a forgiving, uh, soft-hearted person. So you don't think they, he's leaving the door open here at all as like so, kind of a, a qualifier. So I want to thank Anthony Jones. Thank you very much for a lively and interesting conversation. I think we could have talked all day about this, by the way. I mean, we've, Anthony, we've been talking more or less about it for a decade. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, I would add, I would add also, Anthony, I really appreciate you coming on because you embody a, like a voice in, in some ways inside of me. You know, I'm very much, like I like you know, uh, I got a picture of Alexei Navalny on my on my wall because I really like I really like his like nonviolent uh, resistance of the Russian government. I put that up there a long time ago, not even before all this happened. But so you so, so I appreciate you coming on because you can really kind of push back on that more that bend towards pragmatism, you know, and just kind of well, it's just what's most pragmatic, you know. If yeah, I might just add one more thing as yeah. well. I think this is a really good point by Niebuhr at the end of, of this paper he's written on why the Christian is pacifist. He says that we who allow ourselves to become engaged in war need this testimony of the absolutist against us, lest we accept the warfare of the world as normative, lest we become callous to the horror of the war, and lest we forget the ambiguity of our own actions and motives and the risk we run of achieving no permanent good from this momentary anarchy in which we are all involved. So we Beautiful. need people like Anthony Jones with us. And yeah, we're all very ambiguous, corrupted creatures. So Man, that's good. Great, yeah. Great find. Good job. It's great find. Yes. And I, I do hope you come back again, Anthony. Um, sure. uh, so thank you all so much for listening to Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Make sure you hit the like or subscribe button if you like what you're hearing. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at LoveThyNeighbor for updates and posts on upcoming episodes. And feel free to at us if you have any questions or comments about the show. And we might find some time to, to get to those questions or comments on later episodes. Take, every, take care, everyone. Uh, Grace and peace.